This is Brojo Online. Masculinity, confidence, and integrity with Dan Monroe. Alrighty, welcome back to Brojo Online. And I'm here today with Jason Miller, who is a certified No More Mr. Nice Guy coach, coming great uh, coming straight from Dr. Glover's camp and from his wisdom. And uh, I believe he started as a dating coach, was around 2011, and has branched out into leadership and uh, other types of training since then. Jason, welcome. Thank you, Daniel. It's very good to be here. Thank you for having me on the podcast. Well, um, yeah, it's like I was saying before, man, I'm, I'm happy to have you here because we do such similar work with, with the same kind of group of people, and we've no doubt got so much to talk about. Um, and I'd like to, yeah, I'd like to start just digging into the background a bit like I do with everybody. Maybe let's start with just having a look at, you know, what was going on for you in your life before, you know, you're at a point before you could help others. You know, what was the kind of work you were doing on yourself? I think, you know, for me growing up, I'd always had kind of these, these problems or these things that I needed to work on. I was kind of always a fixer and I started out fixing myself and the origins kind of, of my kind of nice guy background was my father. So I had, I had a father that in retrospect, we think had narcissistic personality disorder. Oh, wow. So, yeah. So, so growing up in that situation with kind of the, the emotional abuse on um, the bad behavior, the lack of empathy, from him I think is basically in a nutshell and basically the the bad relationship he had with his with my mom because of it I think that's basically the origin of kind of the nice guy paradigm for me uh, I've spent years in therapy working on kind of generalized anxiety um, I spent um, a lot of my life challenged by relationships with women getting crushed is getting friend zoned, um, getting um, frustrated, uh, choosing women that weren't a good fit, uh, settling, trying to fix women. So having a lot of dysfunction in my relationships with women, um, not really having a good paradigm for um, relationships with men. As I got like into my 20s, I kind of lost touch with who I was as a man, I was trying to, in a lot of ways to be anti-dad. And I think in some ways he was kind of this, this kind of macho, kind of classic macho misogynistic kind of guy. And so it, it, that kind of propelled me to go in the opposite direction. So that's a largely how I became a nice guy. And in doing so, it made it harder for me to bond with other men because I kind of perceived them through that lens. They're kind of like macho jerks, right? So why would I want to hang out with them? I'm a nice guy. Um, so, so it was kind of learning, um, you know, over time, kind of reconnecting with that and what that really looks like. Um, and not getting, I mean, kind of hitting late 30s, early 40s, not getting what I needed from therapy, right? Um, came out of a long-term relationship, kind of a difficult breakup, uh, a yet another woman that I was trying to fix. Uh, that was kind of my thing is kind of fix women that couldn't be fixed. And was really just doing a really bad job dating. Um, was really frustrated. Uh, wasn't getting second dates. Was getting friends on to 
again, was out of my groove, uh, lonely, depressed, frustrated, anxious, all the above, and kind of sliding back on some of the work that I'd done. And right around that time, it was kind of peak pickup artist, right? So that was the late, like right around 2008. Mm -hmm. And looking at all that stuff, and I'm like, well, of course, I'm a nice guy. That stuff's basically macho bullshit. I don't want to do it, right? That doesn't make any sense to me. Why are these guys being jerks and why is it working, right? Nice guy, jerk duality. Um, and I looked around and I actually found a coach. So this coach was a young woman. Okay, so here I am like around, you know, 38, 39 years old. It's a young woman, right, in her 20s. And I'm like, okay, she's different. She seems obviously more advanced for her age. It's a pretty unique individual, actually. Kind of, as I learned later on, that, that her, her parents like hired a life coach for her when she was a teenager. Wow. So it's kind of one of those, yeah, pretty interesting, uh, pretty interesting situation. Um, and I took a chance and, I, and I, I hired her as a coach. And her big thing was um, sitting guys down with their cute friends, shooting video, and immediately playing back the video and picking you apart and giving you feedback absolutely brutal process and she had taken it because she was at the time an aspiring actor so she was taking it from acting classes taking a lot of what she was learning in acting classes and applying it in this context it was absolutely brilliant right so i did that for about six to nine months and i, and I got a measure of improvement and i got a girlfriend that i really liked but I, what i didn't know at the time is that with this girlfriend i was running nice guy with her 100 percent needing anxious uh, issues with sex, uh, killing all the tension in the relationship, um, being needy, all the above, right? So it, it basically, she dumped me. She's like, well, I don't know why. I'm just not feeling anymore. It's weird, and, it, and, it's, and it's over, right? And of course, that was kind of a big, giant letdown, right? Meanwhile, at the same time, my coach was letting me um, coach alongside her. So learning to give feedback to these guys was extremely valuable because then all of a sudden I'm actually, I think as you mentioned earlier before we actually started recording, you said, you know, as I'm starting to teach this stuff, I'm actually learning it as I'm teaching it, right? That's one of the things that, that I think a lot of guys probably notice is that when you just barely get the concept and then you start teaching it, it really accelerates your learning. It really cements it, right? So that, that was what I was doing at the time. For about a year, year and a half, I did that with her. I was getting into it. I'm like, this coaching thing is pretty awesome. I'm really enjoying it. It's very satisfying. And um, it's really helping me. And it's something that guys I'm working with and I want to do more of it. I knew that's what I wanted to end up doing uh, as, as a vocation, uh, as a calling. So come about a year, year or so later, I discover Dr. Glover on a podcast. And I'm like, whoa, what is this? This concept, this nice guy syndrome concept. I get the book, I read the book in literally hours from start to finish. Mm -hmm. And I'm just like, oh, okay. So basically, this book explains everything. <laughs> it explains everything. So this all of a sudden the world made sense. I mean, after years, you know, and hundreds and hundreds of hours of therapy, and certainly, you know, a lot of time with coaching and, and being a coaching client and, and actually this coach wasn't the only coach that I'd hired in the past I'd been working with a bunch of people this actually made sense this was kind of the the, the Rosetta Stone or the, or the roadmap or the owner's manual basically that I was looking for and very very quickly everything fell into place 
I mean, a lot of the work that I'd done over the years started to pay off because everything made sense. And the whole thing is that it's a unifying theory, right? I think that what a lot of guys don't get is that you, there's aspects of anxiety and there's aspects of shame and the nice guy syndrome, but they're generalized, right? The whole concept of toxic shame is generalized, which means that it's going to appear everywhere. It's going to appear randomly throughout your life, right? It's not, you're not going to expect it. It's going to get triggered and you're never really going to know when it's, get, it's going to get triggered. Whether, you know, it's shame or the anxiety in, in, uh, at one point in my background, a therapist was, was thinking, you, I think you have generalized anxiety. I think you need to go on medication. And I said, no, I'm not doing that. <laughs> um, but there is, because it is a generalized phenomenon, I think that that's kind of a, a revelation that, um, that it's just kind of who you are in a sense. It's just kind of the, the software that you inherited. It's not really um, something that... Uh, something you can fix in a different, in a, in, a, in a particular context, you know, you can't fix it in the, in the, in, the, in your dating life and then expect it to go away, you know? So, so I kind of hit that stage and I was, everything fell into place. Everything made sense. I basically entered, you know, into basically a lot of, a lot of very, uh, very casual dating. Uh, my attitude towards women completely changed. Um, uh, the neediness basically showed, Shut down. I really got a handle on the neediness. I got to the point where it's like, wow, you know, I don't have to, I don't have to do that. <laughs> <laughs> you know, this whole idea is like this whole idea of trying to, to get somebody to like me. It's like all of a sudden I was pretty much done with it. I was like, yeah, I don't need that anymore. <laughs> I, I really don't need that. Is this aspect of needing to have a woman in order to validate yourself and you can have sex in order to validate yourself? I'm like, yeah, that went away too um it was pretty fast uh it was kind of like yeah i don't need any of that as soon as i saw the nice guy syndrome as a as a as a, as a complete conceptual framework it's just really easy to say oh yeah <laughs> okay there it is i don't need to do it you know i can really pull away from it and do whatever i want instead so you know relationships got better um kind of went on a tear, did a lot of dating, had a lot more sex over a period of a year or two. Um, it was interesting. It was, it was really kind of testing me in various ways. As Glover says, you know, relationships are a growth path. It all is. It doesn't matter what you're doing. It's a growth path. You choose to make it one. Um, yeah, it got to the point where, you know, as I started to, I went pro right around this time, you know, a few years ago, I went pro as a coach and basically took that on as my full-time thing. And I came across um, a leadership framework called Theory U, which is a whole other topic. I don't want to dig into it, but it was very inspirational. It brought a lot of the threads together between empathy and um, systems thinking. And a lot of stuff that I was doing at the individual level all of a sudden made sense at the group level, at the team level. And the leadership um, model that they use is really interesting. And that all kind of clicked in, you know, my corporate background, it all, everything started to make sense. It was, it was another framework that actually helped me make sense in, in the world of something that I was hoping, you know, on some level, it's kind of like, you're kind of, you go through life, you're like hoping for a solution and you're waiting for some sort of sense of 
order or knowing or understanding. And then these things come along and you're like, boom, like a huge dose of like clarity and understanding. And it's like that. So that's yet another moment like that. And um, so I just started to get at that time, started to play around with that framework, uh, started to get some corporate gigs and do some uh, corporate stuff. And that's been fun too. So a lot of the coaching that I do today is, is well, I do a fair measure of, of helping nice guys with dating. I'm also working in areas of how to, you know, how to help them manage teams. I mean, all your nice guy issues come up, you know, if you're, in leadership role you're going to have all kinds of challenges in terms you know do I do what's necessary or do I try to get them to like me and you know the conflict gives me anxiety and all that stuff comes up um you know I have have clients right now that are that are in business as well um one guy in particular is a business leader but I'm also I'm simultaneously coaching him as a as a as a manager um as a business leader and dating at the same time (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> so it's kind of it's just kind of interesting because the overlap is pretty profound right it really comes down to you know the central paradigm that you're operating from so i've, I've rambled uh, i don't know how long i've gone on for it but no, that's kind of how we got here today yeah ah <laughs> oh, this is uh there is so much in there i relate to and also some some key differences in our background which um lately i've been looking into what I just made up was different types of nice guy because I've found that there, I used to think we're all one type because I knew what my type was sort of thing. And then I realized, well, there's different backgrounds and different sort of manifestations of this. And then there's lots of things that we all have in common. You know, we, we had different fathers, you and I quite different from the sound of it. And we reacted to that differently. Like I've noticed some nice guys take the revenge path. I will not be like him. And others take like the hero worship path. Like I want to be like him. And he's a nice guy, of course. Mm-hmm. Mapping that, I was kind of more like I was mirroring his nice guy behavior, uh, whereas mm-hmm. yours was kind of like a yeah, like a cure or an antidote to to your father. So it's interesting to see that different background come through. Uh, it took, actually, I took it a step further. I mean, for me, I took it a step further, and I always, in a lot of ways, not only was I renouncing him, but I was renouncing masculinity itself mm-hmm. in many ways, or my perception of what I thought masculinity was. You know, and that was sending me off into, into an area where uh, I'll give you a very clear example of what I'm talking about. I directly attribute that to something that was observed when I was shoot, being shot on video with this one coach. I was getting feedback from her assistants that I was coming across as gay on video. Mm. I was setting off gaydar, right? So, so that was incredibly valuable feedback because in retrospect, what I think what was happening with me was that in, in being too nice and in, in being kind of anti-dad and anti-masculine because that's bad, I was actually abnegating my own natural masculine affect in my nonverbals in these interactions, right? So, mm-hmm. um, yeah, I took, it, I took it pretty far. Yeah. Yeah, well, you're not alone in <laughs> that. That's interesting because I was more pretending to be hard like lots of banter, lots of pretending not to care, but also very compassionate and nice. So I, I was a mixed bag, but I was, I was in mm-hmm. this, I was anti-masculinity, uh, except around other men. So I had a lot of friendships with men. I think that's a key mm-hmm. difference between you and I as well. But my friendships were so much about seeking approval from men. 
Um, mm. My dad was quite distant, so I guess I was trying to close that gap with other male people, and it was always mm. trying to sh- trying to be a guy I thought would impress them, a very masculine man, which was very much felt like an act. And when a woman was around, I'd totally put that act away, and I'd become like fucking counselor nurse you know i was just this i couldn't be more sort of either passive or feminine so yeah really interesting and you know the thing that fascinates me the most about your story i'm so glad now you know i mean i was always glad that i got you on this call but for this specific point i've met a lot of guys who are into their 30s or 40s and they think it's too late and even when i interview other coaches they kind of sorted all their shit out by the time they're 25 and were like pro coaches at 26 sort of thing, you know? And it's so, uh, it's so unique and and definitely inspirational for, for the people listening to know, not only were you chipping away at this, even if the therapy was ultimately unhelpful, you're chipping away at this for many years. You never stopped. And then you finally made the breakthrough, you know, in your late thirties. Um, I don't even know where I'm going with that, but it's such an important point because I have guys who hit 30 and they go, it's too late for me. You know, I'm stuck in being a nice guy now. I'm like, did you mm-hmm. just started? Like, are you dead yet? What the fuck? You know? like, get onto it. <laughs> There's still room, shit. But how well, do you have yeah, that flexibility of mind to, to keep trying to change like that? Uh, I don't know. I, I, that was something that, that was just built in the the need to fix myself was just built in it just it just was always there and it never went away so I don't really know where that comes from I mean when you talk about and I'm solidly generation x I I just turned 50 right Right. so the the thing is that the young guys that I I coach yeah uh, when I started to coach younger guys I was like dang I wish I was your age when I got Mm -hmm. this stuff right you know uh, that would really help. Um, but you know, at the same time, it's like, it, it just, you can't, you got to let go of that pretty quickly. Right. Because there's obviously nothing you can do about it. Um, yeah. But uh, it, it's sort of like you, you can, you can run around and have a fantasy about, you know, if I just like to download what I know now into my 21 year old self, that would be perfect. Right. Um, just think of what you could do. <laughs> um yeah it's it's a nice fantasy but it, it, it kind of it, it when i when i think about it it's like yeah it, what are you going to do about it well i'm going to do what i'm doing right now you know get get onto your mission get onto your path and start contributing to the greater good you know um and and that fits into a little bit with how i how i worked out you know the connection between being a coach and the greater good um and this is something that, that I think that you can't get to. If you're, if you're mired in the nice guy syndrome, right, and you're constantly in your head and you're working with the anxiety and the shame directly, and then you got coaches coming at you and saying, well, you need to find your purpose, you need to find your mission. It's hard to do when your brain is filled with that stuff that you can't quite escape, right? I mean, you can't get in touch with that. You haven't created the space for it yet, right? So when you start to get a handle on anxiety and shame, it starts to quiet down in your mind. That opens up the space for the creativity to actually create something with impact in the world or take the, leader, take the leadership role in something like that, right? You just can't do it when you're mired in 
uh, anxiety and shame. It's just not doable, right? Um, you, you can't do it when you're when your um, paradigm is is codependence or your paradigm is I must have a smooth problem for your life. You know, we've got all that locked in. You haven't quite figured it out yet. It makes it really hard to step into that. I mean, if you asked me 20 years ago, you know, would you ever see yourself in a leadership role or a management role? I'm like, hell no. Why would anyone do that? That sucks. I look at what they're doing and that sucks. That's, that's anti-smooth problem-free life, right? Let me just do my thing, you know, do my job, go home, watch TV, you know, whatever your, <laughs> whatever your, uh, your evening checkout <laughs> sequences, right? Video games, whatever your thing is, right? Um, but yeah, you, the more space you can create, the more self-mastery you get, then, then it's, it's incumbent on you to start doing something to contribute to the greater good. So that, that kind of pulls the thread together for me that, that if I can get a guy out of his own way, then he's going to have a, a greater impact in the world. So the downstream effect of me working with guys is, is more good things happening in the world. Guys creating great things, collaborating, right? Um, uh, so that's that's how it fits into my mission, and a lot of that actually, and I mentioned theory earlier, and a lot of that has to do with uh, what I learned in, in from that framework, and in part of it is the brilliance of theory. And if you ever, you can just Google it. There's they have a free online course if anybody's interested in checking it out. It's pretty amazing. Basically, looking at this is really profound because it's not um, it's not something that people normally do, but. What the instructor did, he's a lecturer at MIT, what the instructor did um, in the opening of class is he basically highlights what the big world problems are, you know, uh, environment, you know, um, income inequality, um, you know, the, the, the spiritual divide, you know, the exist, individual existential crises, or however he phrases it, right? He kind of lays out like seven or eight categories of major, these are kind of the major categories of problems that humanity faces it's brilliant it's like that's it yeah that's all there is mm -hmm. right and what he does in his course he literally connects it through going through the work you connect what you do with with those problems right you connect with what you're doing logically connect it, it to to it, somehow contributing to solving these big problems that we face as humanity and did when you get that message, it's like, okay, forget it. You know, whatever's like neediness. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> you know, anxiety. Okay. You know, that's, that's part of life, right? It's it, all your problems will, if you can really get a handle on the, on the, the magnitude of that, then, then your individual problems really do shrink. Oh yeah. Um, you know, this, this could be a good thread for us to pull on. Uh, it's, a, it's a direction I didn't see coming, but now that you bring it up, like one of the huge things that comes up in the nice guy audience a lot, especially as you say, once they've worked on the kind of initial, you know, the, <laughs> the swamp of shame that you've got to climb out of before you can even think is just this absolute uh, dread about not having a purpose, about not being significant. And, and I want to come mm. back to that, but there was a point I wanted to, to jump on before because I just thought it was so significant and, and I'll just burst if I don't say it which was the, you call it the unifying theory. This thing just hit me so hard when you were saying it because when I first kind of started peeling back the layer on, on the nice guyness, after I read the book, 
and I'd been doing a pickup thing before that. I already saw some, there's something going on there, something deep. I read the book and that was when I noticed, shit, this is everywhere in my life. In fact, about the only time it doesn't come up is when I'm alone and relaxing. Every other area of my life is, I can significantly see cause and effect relationship between nice guy syndrome and the way I behave and what happens in my life, you know? And mm. this is like a lot of guys will come and say, they think their only problem is that they're getting in the friend zone. I'm like, dude, that is the surface of your problems. <laughs> like that, mm-hmm. that's not even the thing you need to be worried about. Like that'll solve itself once we, we get to the core of this. And you mentioned the word shame a number of times. I want to come back to this. Uh, you know, I'm really interested in talking about this, um, this leadership, this theory of you and, and sort of connecting yourself to the grander problems in the world. But one of the things I really want to hear, like imagine there's, you know, your standard nice guy listening to this. He thinks he has a couple of issues. He doesn't quite, or he might just be realizing that maybe it's everywhere in his life now. Mm-hmm. Where does he start? What do you recommend to like get going to get out of the swamp? Okay, so I think it's really important to take a, if 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 a guy is and and it's true, a lot of guys' biggest pain point is their relationship with women. That's mm-hmm. generally from their perspective, that's the biggest problem they have, right? It's the thing they're most obsessed about. Um, yeah. uh, and your point that it's it's really just the surface, you know, is absolutely right. So the way I describe nice guy syndrome a little bit differently in the sense that I think that it's basically, as we said earlier, generalized shame, generalized anxiety, codependence. Okay. And a very faulty worldview, very faulty life strategy, right. In which, you know, there's somehow the pursuit of a smooth, as Glover as a smooth problem for your life mm-hmm. is all that really matters and in assuming that that's actually attainable because it's not so chasing this fantasy of a smooth problem for your life so when you chase this fantasy of a smooth problem for your life basically what you're saying is that um <laughs> anxiety should go away shame should go away codependence should go away nice guy syndrome should go away all of it should go away and everything should be 100 percent great 100 percent of the time otherwise everything's bullshit it's basically, it's basically a newbie nice guy is going to attack the problem, right? It's coming from that perspective. So the place to start is really to, to look at, I'll give, you, I'll give you actually a really concrete example of a guy that I just started, a brand new client that I just started with, where I'm having him start because he's, he's caught up in it. He's just, re, just waking up to it is judgment okay Mm. so so practicing non-judgment you know if you go through glover's material you'll find him sit he'll you'll hear him say observe without without judgment right suspend your judgment well let's take the judgment conversation a little bit more more uh into the into the rabbit hole right so what is actually judgment right Judgment is basically a positive or negative evaluation of anything and everything. Any thoughts you have, any feeling you have, any idea you have, any response you have to anyone else, anything anybody else does, anything anybody else thinks, right? Um, Anything that happens to you, anything that happens to someone else, right? 
every event that you observe is subject to judgment, positive or negative, right? And we go through life and we evaluate absolutely every phenomenon that we observe, every detail that we observe is positive or negative, and we don't even know we're doing it, mm-hmm. right? So what I started this guy off with is because, you know, he's got all kinds of beliefs and all kinds of, the nice guy paradigm and everything is filtered through that. And he doesn't even know what it looks like. So we started with, all right, so what is judgment? So what I'm having him do, and he literally just started uh, a couple of weeks ago, is start to document where you start, where you're observing judgment. Don't do anything else. Don't try to suspend it. Um, don't try to, you know, uh, don't try to don't judge the judgment you're having, you know, Oh, I just, I just, I just, that woman just made a funny remark. And now I think that means that, that she must not like me. And, Oh, I'm not supposed to think that way because I'm supposed to suspend judgment. So, so I'm going to be a perfectionist about being, you know, non-judgmental and, you know, it just goes on and on and on. So the way that you heard the joke that like the, the, the young fish is, swimming along and old fish swims by and say hey how's the water and the young fish goes well what the hell's water what are you talking about right so judgment is the sea that you're swimming in and until i gra- until i basically grab you by the tail and, and pull you into the air you don't know mm. right so the air is basically non-judgment so it's the third way so basically when you observe a judgment you have a choice you can basically say yes that's positive no that's negative or i don't really care right i can let it go i don't have to judge it either way i can just say well that's just what happened i'll just deal with it i'll just handle it right take the emotional charge out of it because basically every time we judge something it's negative as a nice guy we carry it all the way down from oh she rejected me therefore i did something wrong therefore i'm never gonna get it therefore women are never gonna like me therefore i'm gonna die alone you know you know it, it just it goes on and on right or you know oh if i screw this interaction up with her then she's gonna reject me and then she's gonna find out what a loser i am what a nice guy i am and then you know shame 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 anxiety anxiety right mm-hmm. so when we start to split out the start to practice non-judgment basically we're depolarizing we're basically taking the charge taking the emotional charge off stuff because you can't unsee it once i basically say well, okay, so you have a judgment that that rejection was negative. Okay, do you want to have that judgment? When you take a step back and look at it, is that a useful judgment for you to maintain? To basically say that's a bad thing and it reflects badly on you and it means you're not going to get what you want? How helpful is that? Is it based in reality? Can you, can you prove it? And even if you could prove it, is it useful to know that? So we start to get into it. As you dig deeper into that, you start to uncover what your limiting beliefs are. They emerge pretty quickly, mm-hmm. right? And then we start to get, get to disprove those and start to see where they show up, you know, because they're going to show up repeatedly. And what I, what I do with clients is I just have them document stuff until they start to see the patterns. When they start to see the patterns, then it becomes irrefutable. Basically, you've got a pattern. It's really observable. It's predictable. You can take responsibility for it now. You get to do with it what you want to do with it now. You don't have to. You don't have to treat it as truth, reality, meaningful. Um, you don't have to treat it as yours. You can treat it as somebody else's that you just inherited. You can do whatever you want with it, right? You can take 
take the um, it basically not take away its power by no longer defining it as a problem. I don't know if you've experienced this with clients, but I get this every once in a while where we will <laughs> we will work out the strategy, we will work out the solution. The, the client is solid on what they're going to do, how they're going to handle it, and they just don't want to stop talking about it. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Have you experienced that with your clients? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it is like, yeah, yeah. And I'm just like, I'll stop and I'll say, okay, so why are we still talking about this? Oh, well, you know, I just wanted to fill in the background or make sure, you know, everything. And I go, okay, is that really who's talking right now? Or is this just your anxiety talking, right? Are you just trying to overmanage the future? So, so yeah, that, that's, uh, that's, that's where I start. I'm, you know, very often I'll start them on, on judgment. Um, but sometimes I will start them, you know, in the context of what they're working on. If they're, if they're focused on dating, I'll start them in that context and let the conversation unfold. Because it will, as you know, as a coach, it will unfold and encompass their whole life and affect their whole paradigms and their strategies and everything. It'll, it'll expand. It'll fill the space. So yeah. I, I usually just kind of, yeah. For, for new guys, I would say, I think the most important thing is to get, get make contact with other guys and share, share the really scary stories with safe guys. I have a local um, meetup where we get a little bit of a guys will get a little bit of a taste of that. And they'll um, say, okay, well, it's reassuring. I'm not alone. Um, nobody's going to shame me or judge me for telling this embarrassing story or this painful story. And sometimes that goes, I think that goes a long way. Oh yeah. Cause yeah, it, ta- it takes a lot of the charge out of the, of the shame because you're like, okay, you know, See, you build up the, the evidence that a bunch of people are not judging you for it. Therefore, why would anybody really? It's safer, right? Yeah, I often, I'm often looking for what I think of as shame multipliers. Like, you're already ashamed, and what doubles it, and what triples it. And nice guys often, they often think of themselves as this unique beast, you know, as just me who's like this. And then when you go meet nine other guys and they're talking the exact same sort of thought patterns and doing the same behaviors as you as you're like, okay, maybe I'm not quite the freak alien that I suspected I was. And that, I've actually found that that's quite hard for some guys to take because they actually have a bit of a kind of martyr attachment to being the odd one out. You know, they've suffered a lot. They want to at least know that they were uniquely glorious in their suffering rather than, Hey, now we just, you know, what I loved is you said strategy, <laughs> like, there's nice guy syndrome, but really it's nice guy strategy to deal with shame. You know, it's, it's a reactive set of behaviors to try and deal with this constant sense of wrongness about yourself. And I love the metaphor Mm -hmm. of the fish who doesn't know he's in water. You know, I always thought like what you were saying before, I got a lot of that from stoicism when I was, I was reading a lot of Marcus Aurelius and Seneca and, I came to realize like everything's neutral until I start telling myself a story about it, then it all changes. And it was fine until that story started and not even the story itself, but me believing the story, you know, Mm -hmm. the girl says no to me. That's just a word coming out of her mouth. Nothing bad's fucking happened until I start telling myself why she said no and believing that story. And then my whole world comes crashing. Mm -hmm. So 
I think like you identified, some guys, they've spent so much of their life believing that judgment that they don't even question its existence. It's, they, they can't even see it. It's so quickly attached to reality that it is reality for them. And yeah. Yeah. It's, it's well, and all you, 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 everybody does it. All humans do it. It's just that from the nice guy paradigm, it makes it that much worse. It makes it much harder on you. Right. The thing is, is that the strategies that you learned because they don't work and you don't know why they don't work. It's you, it's like they come to the, come to life believing this, this is how life works. It really is a flawed paradigm. Right. And you're right. I think it's all about management. It's, it's basically learned management strategies to get away from the shame and get away from the anxiety. And the whole point, and this is, this is the whole point is it, Nice guys have such a hard time with discomfort because we, they believe, we believe that, that any form of discomfort is actually dangerous. Mm. All forms of discomfort are actually dangerous, no matter how, you know, we'd rather sit in a, in a daily, have a daily existence of mild discomfort because we think that that's as good as it's going to get mm. than experience any sort of major or acute discomfort the discomfort itself is actually perceived as true danger. I see this over and over and over. The reason, and there's guys in my group that, you know, that I can think of that it's like they're paralyzed by life. They live a lot, you know, quiet desperation, right? Lead a life of quiet desperation, right? Like a low grade level of misery. Yeah a low grade level of discomfort and anxiety and shame that they tolerate on a day-to-day basis. And it's learned helplessness because anything that's the remotely riskier than that baseline is perceived, I think on the emotional level perceived as imminent death. Yeah. Like if I really take this huge risk, this perceived huge risk, not only is it irreversible, not only does it subject me to like severe danger, it's it's a catastrophe it's a catastrophe waiting to happen i used to um catastrophize big time oh yeah. the issues that <laughs> I worked on in therapy was like it you know it's like i'm so afraid of this happening you know if it happens all uh, i feel like i'm gonna die <laughs> right the reality is, is that you actually you're not gonna die you're just gonna have to deal with it <laughs> I remember once just, uh, my boss was mad at me and within five uh, minutes I was worried about being homeless, you know, like, yeah, like I can't, <laughs> to this day, I can't figure out how I got there, but it made sense in my mind at the time. There's this massive escalation of risk from just feeling a bit of anxiety. I just go all the way with it. God, that hits hard. Yeah. yeah so it, it's kind of the, I would put it, make it a corollary to, you know, the, the need to pursue a smooth problem free life. And part of that means, you know, all, discomfort is really a fate worse than death. Mm-hmm. It's crazy. It's really, it's kind of like, once I kind of woke up to that, I was like, yeah, what's, you're not, you're not even close to living a life when you're doing that. You're all the way at the other extreme of basically, you know, I mean, they've done study years ago, they've done studies, you know, where they, basically shock the animal in the cage and you know where it steps it gets shocked and then it basically just cowers in the corner 
you know, because it's just we're in helpless and they turn off the electricity and the, and the animal won't move. Mm-hmm. Right. Well, that's that's a yeah. really good. Thank God they don't do that anymore. But what, go ahead. Because one of the things that I, I always find fascinating is that at one point in time, the nice guy strategy made sense, or at least it made sense to the child with their limited capacity as they develop the story. I think Glover talks about that in the book. Kind of like that's the best you could come mm-hmm. up with at the time to deal with what was probably a genuinely threatening situation. Like the way mm-hmm. you described your dad, I can see plenty of times there where you feeling discomfort was a real warning sign. You know, I remember I used to get, my, my dad was quite grumpy when I was younger and, and he'd come home and immediately my heart rate would increase. Just And it was just a warning. Like mm-hmm. I'm at now at more risk of getting in trouble, getting yelled at, whatever, misdemeanors. Um, a lot of my guys that I've worked with, bullying or like horrific treatment in a very specific way where they learned, hey, if I feel uncomfortable, I trust that feeling completely as a threat and I react with this very extremely protective strategy and all of this is basically subconscious by the time they're adults. You know, they're just, someone's mad at me, instantly be nice to them. Makes total sense. Don't even need to question it remotely. And I, you know, it's, uh, you know what really hit me was when you talked about that mild, constant discomfort as being like an acceptable baseline. I didn't even know I had chronic anxiety until it went away. You know, I was just one day I woke up, I'm like, hey, I don't have that buzzy feeling in my stomach anymore. That feeling I had like mm-hmm. from 13 to 28. I was like, what? It took me a while to realize it was gone. It's kind of like, you know, when you, you, something's missing, it takes you ages to realize. I thought, fuck that. I thought that was just how people feel. I thought that was just a, like a body. That's what a body feels like. I didn't realize that I was constantly a little bit anxious, but I preferred that over like spikes of fear or spikes of confusion you know, or spikes of anger, I'd rather get back to that low, miserable buzz, you know, and it's, it's tragic to look back and go, fuck, I accepted that, but I didn't know any better. That was life. I thought I was making the most of it, but uh, I just couldn't see I was in the water, you know? Yeah. (laughs) That, I mean, that's where the book is such a revelation because it pulls you out of the water. Right. So yeah, I think that, um, that's the, that's the thing. Yeah. For me, reading that book was, I always describe it as like getting kicked in the nuts over and over again. Like every page I had to put it down <laughs> and just be like, Jesus Christ, did he just study me to write this book? Like what the fuck? But it was all, it was, I, I would do it again in a heartbeat. It was a very, it was probably the most painful book for me to read in my life simply because of how, just laser point accurate it was. It called out every single piece of my bullshit in such a way that I couldn't deny that it was bullshit. Even though I was just realizing it for the first time, it's like you think the earth is flat and then someone takes you up into space and shows you the roundness. You just can't deny it anymore. You know, like, okay, this changes everything. I I, I sort of put a bookmark in this because I wanted to come back to it. You know, Mm -hmm. we talked about sort of a guy's right at the beginning of nice guy syndrome and then, I really want to come back to what you are deeply passionate about because what I see, like I said before, is guys working on this, we'll call it shame rather than nice guy syndrome because that's really what it is. And they work on, they get to a place where like, okay, I can actually function now. I I'm, I'm aware of this problem and I'm dealing with it. 
And, and mm-hmm. in my experience, so often it's about that point in time where this actual quite an existential crisis comes out, which is like, why the fuck am I even doing anything? Like, what am I here for? That very purpose, you know, dread of like, I'm insignificant. I'm not doing something. And uh-huh. you, know, you and I, I think both align with the idea that the work we do, like I've always thought, like if we can solve confidence problems, we solve all the other ones. You know, I think of it as like this really high yeah. leverage one. If everybody had high self-worth, they wouldn't do all this nasty shit and everything would kind of like, like 80% of our problems would go away. So that's why I do the work I do. Tell us a bit more about your experience or, or your understanding of how people get in touch uh, with that like connection to a, a greater reason to do stuff. Well, I, I think you've actually explained it perfectly because if you are getting to a point where uh, you're not making decisions based on covering up your shame, you're not making decisions about based on avoiding anxiety, uh, your mind chatter quiets down, right? You're ruminating, you're worrying, you're catastrophizing, your mind chatter starts to quiet down. Then, yeah, you, you might freak out. <laughs> you might freak out because what you're getting in touch with again and is um, in the space that you're creating you're grappling with your own judgments of that space what is the space mm-hmm. right because there is no if you are truly practicing non-judgment there's no real inherent meaning anywhere right if you carry it all the way to the extreme and say, you know, I don't judge anything. Everything is just the way that it is. It's not positive or negative. It's very difficult to logically ascertain what meaning meaning is in that scenario, right? So if you're grappling with that, if you're at that point and you're like, well, I don't understand what my purpose is and meaning is and this space is kind of giving me a new weird anxiety I haven't experienced before, then, then it is my opinion that all roads lead to a choice of whether you're going to contribute to the greater good in some way or not Mm. i don't know that you can either be a human on this planet with any amount of compassion and not see that that you are connected to the whole in some way and if you have capacity you know and you have compassion then it only makes sense that you figure out how you connect up with, with serving that. It's not, it's, it's just as simple as that, right? You, you could just say, Oh, well, I'm not into that. I'm just into doing stuff for myself. You know, I just want to create stuff for myself, you know? Okay, fine. You can do that. You know, <laughs> no judgment for me. <laughs> <laughs> right. Cause that's just, that's just what some people are going to do. Right. They say, oh, wow, you know, I'm just going to strive and get what I want and get the car and get the house and get the wife and get, you know, just work, work for myself and my own situation. And, and that's all I really care about. OK. Um, but generally speaking. Um, the meaning that you're kind of reaching for, it's, it's going to be something about contributing to the greater good or helping other people or making the world a better place. It's just all roads kind of lead to that. So it kind of keeps it simple. And I think that the piece that people often miss is that um, whatever, whatever you do has an impact downstream on other people. It just does. Can't avoid it, right? So 
the more proactive you can get about having a positive impact on people, the more that you can help them directly, the, the bigger the downstream impact. I mean, it's everything from the high school, you know, athletics coach, you know, to the teachers, you know, everybody who's doing some sort of, uh, to the really great manager at some corporate job, the really outstanding manager that everybody likes to, um, you know, all the way up through leadership in government or whatever, any, any role that you want to look at, there's a downstream impact to what you're doing in some form or another. I remember years ago, a therapist tried to convince me that that was true and I didn't get it. You know, because we're working in a corporate job, big, huge company. I didn't really see how I was connected to anything. Didn't make a whole lot of sense to me. Um, management was very dysfunctional, right? I felt very, very disconnected and disconnected from any sense of meaning in that, in that role. Whereas on some level, people were benefiting from what the company was doing. I mean, it wasn't completely without some sort of benefit or side effects or however you want to look at it. But um, it's really making that declaration in your mind that, that you're about the greater good on some way. You just kind of, you just kind of step into it and take it on. It, it's like I said earlier, though, it's, it's incredibly difficult to do when all you think about is anxiety and shame and all your strategies and everything and coping. It's really hard to do. It's really hard to connect with it. Oh yeah. Well, you- but you're so busy, aren't you? Seeking approval all day long. Like, you yes. got and left. <laughs> like, <laughs> room to think about a purpose? I'm just trying to fucking get by here and pick up as many, like, good boy points as I can before bed, you know? And what, you know, one of the things that inspired me to, to do, you know, the kind of work that we do specifically with this kind of audience, not only because I was that or still am or whatever it is, you know, it stays with you forever a little bit, I think. But, was that the reason that the nice guy strategy exists is kind of like, well, from my point of view, most of the guys in right from the depth of their core, they're trying to do something good. That's why they come with that strategy as opposed to say like someone who's got a very misogynistic strategy or someone who becomes a total prick. You know, there's a lot of people, different Mm -hmm. strategies to react to shame with. And some guys choose mm-hmm. the nice guy one. And I believe, well, I like, I like to believe anyway, that's because most of them actually really do want to reduce harm and, and increase, you know, uh, quality of life for people. It just comes out in very needy, fucked up ways. It kind of gets like mm-hmm. tainted on the way out. I think, okay, I'm going to go try to give to someone. And by the end of it, I'm locking them into a covert contract or something like something got messed up along the way there. But I was really, I don't want people to suffer. And I really, I do want to be a good person. It's just very needy and, and, and shameful. And that's why I get like, I think you, you would have noticed it as well, is that nice guys can make incredibly good leaders once they essentially let the masculinity out of the cage as well. You know, they've already got mm-hmm. deep compassion and a desire to like reduce harm and, and increase the good in the world. And then once you add like a bit of assertiveness and boundary setting and self-worth to that, then that kind of gets really amplified and the ripple, like you said, that downstream effect they have gets amplified. I think one of the things you said that hit home to me was, you know, when I read the book, one of the exercises I clearly remember doing is I stopped helping people for like three weeks because I was such a fixer and I didn't trust that my helping was genuine. I thought, no, I'm imposing myself on people, you know, sort of trying to score points or something. 
And I can remember the specific moment where this girl, and it was a pretty girl too, which is like my absolute weakness. She was uh, unloading boxes from an elevator or something. And this is the kind of thing I'd usually just put on my cape and just dive in and be the fucking hero, right? And I said, no, I'm not. I'm just going to watch, right? I'm just, I'm not going to help. I'm just going to watch. And mm-hmm. she did the job by herself and I'm just drowning in guilt the whole time and shame and thinking, oh my God, like I'm just the worst guy ever for not rescuing her from those boxes. And then there was this look of pride on her face. Like she'd done the boxes all by herself and you could clearly see that she was stoked about that. I was like, shit, like I would have taken that away from her if I had like gone down that other route. And I started to realize like the way I help people could be so much more powerful. I don't have to become a jerk. Like you said, what do you call it? The duality, nice guy, jerk, duality, you know, I don't have to switch to this other side. There's this third thing I didn't realize was available, which is like both worlds and none of the shitty stuff, you know? Right. So I think that's incredibly powerful. Like a lot of nice guys, I, I hear them say like, well, what's wrong with being nice? And I always say, well, that's why you're doing it. You know, that's, that's, that's yes. <laughs> the doing of being nice is, is actually generally all right. It's the reasoning behind it that makes it so fucked up. And once you change that reasoning, you can do some powerful stuff. Well, and you're, what you're pointing to is, is looking at relationships transactionally versus collaboratively, mm. right? So making the shift from, from, I mean, the purpose of a relationship is not to exchange transactions, right? The purpose of a relationship is to collaborate and create something. So snapping you out of that, that's another nice guy paradigm that I see is that looking at it as transactionally because you're constantly trying to extract validation out of the relationship as a nice guy. You're constantly trying to figure out ways to get that person to take away your shame and anxiety, right? You're using that person to reduce your shame and anxiety through extracting validation out of that. That's basically what a nice guy is. is that's why he's doing the covert contracts is because he's using literally using other people to help him make, you know, help him feel better. He doesn't even know he's doing it. Right. You see a lot of um, backlash, you know, anger against nice guys. If you look in, uh, you know, feminist media and that kind of thing, that's what they're pointing to right? They may not quite get it the way we get it, but that's what they're pointing to is that literally what they're picking up on is the nice guys urge to literally use the people that they're in a relationship. It's a manipulation, right? Um, I'll give you a really classic example of a guy that I worked with a few years ago in his fifties, long-term marriage, not happy with the marriage, hasn't been happy with it for years. You know, if she gave me more sex, then I'd be happy. She gave me more affection, then I'd be happy. And then meanwhile, she's like, well, you know, he had, she had some demands of him, you know, so if they could exchange each other's demands, then they would quote, be happy. Come on. Right. <laughs> that's not, that's not going to work. And, and to, to snap somebody out of that transactional paradigm for relationships into collaborative, it, it's a huge requirement because you have to let go of your need to get that other person to help you feel better. You take full responsibility for when you don't feel good. And you can see how that collapses back onto the, the nice guy's um, issues with discomfort itself. Because if I'm re- getting really good at 
in handling discomfort and I make discomfort my friend and I take the judgment out of discomfort, then I can take bigger risks in relationships. I can be more vulnerable. Um, I can be more present. Um, I can be more empathetic. I can be more playful. I can be more creative, right? These are, these are things we don't have access to in that transactional mindset. Mm. And I would argue that the, it's a huge reason why nice guys have issues with women because they're in that transactional mindset. Treating women as a machine. If I can crack the code on this machine and put the right inputs in at the right time, I'll get the right result. I'll get the validation I want. I'll get the attention I want. I'll get the sex I want. I'll get the girlfriend I want. I'll get the wife I want. If I just, get, if I just crack the code and, and execute the right operations, right? And I tell guys all the time, it's like you cannot treat people, you cannot treat women like machines, like computer programs. That's what you're doing. You're not actually treating her like a person. Are you aware of that? Mm. You're not. You're like. You're not lifting a finger to see the world through her point of view at all. You're not. You're not even in tune with who she is as a person, as a woman. You're not even doing any. You're completely oblivious to that. You're walled off from that entirely, and that's what she's picking up on. That's why you're getting rejected. That's why you're getting friend zone. That's why you're creeping her out. Mm. Right, because you're actually not in it with her. You can't even have a good. There's no way you can have fun. It's too much pressure. You can't even have fun, right? You can't even be willing to say something that turns her off, right? Because collaboration is messy. Mm. It's all prototypes. It's all errors. It's all trial and error. But see, because that flies in the face, you know. That's the other thing the nice guys will do is basically you know, the perfectionism aspect is part of the reason we want to get it right every time all the time is because we want people we're treating people like machines that if we get it right every time all the time then we'll get what we want then we'll have that smooth problem free life and everything's gonna be great it's it's like a house of cards <laughs> yeah i think you, it's a fantasy yeah well i think yeah that fantasy of that smooth problem free life, as you keep saying, I didn't realize I had that, but that wasn't everything, you know, like trying, it's so funny now when I look back at my disastrous attempts at relationships and short term dating and think me trying to keep that smooth. I thought that was a good idea. Like how could I think that was a good idea, but that's only because of what I know now, you know, that you need tension and fluctuation and uncertainty and stuff for it to even be interesting to be in a relationship, you know, but back then I was like, okay, how can I make it so I can go for an entire year without a single argument, you know? <laughs> and then I'd go to work, I'd be like, I did everything right. And that was the really the worst judgment I made is if something went badly for me, my first assumption was that I did everything right and I'm unlucky, you know, rather than actually I absolutely put this recipe together myself this is exactly this turned out exactly how it should based on my behavior you know but it's it's yeah it's hard to face it it's hard to face knowing that you're manipulative you know it's hard to face knowing just how ridiculously fake you are you know it, it took me a long time to just accept that that was true about <laughs> you know it was brutal brutal uh it is brutal. It is brutal. And then, and then it's just another round, another layer of, of non-judgment that you have to practice. And right. so that's just my pattern. That's just what I inherited. 
Yeah, yeah, that's like one of the phases. Once you realize how manipulative you are, you go through a phase of beating yourself up for that. You're like, no, you still don't get it yet. <laughs> you know, you've got to be cool with that too. Well, yeah, and anything I can get a client to get, get him present into the moment and making a conscious decision is a win, right? Mm-hmm. Anything as a practice, anything that I can do to, in the face of all this basically internal chaos, violence, you know, internal negative self-critic, all this stuff that's gone on inside your head. If I can get you to tune in and make a conscious decision and take a conscious action, that's a win. The more often you do that, the, the more you can wean yourself off external validation, uh, the more confident you'll get, less outcome independent. But it's, it's getting guys focused on just getting good at that, that narrow, narrow, but really profound practice is, is where, is where the, the gains are made. Oh, we're so in tune about that. I, I think about it as like one of the key things is frequency as often as you can, like checking in with the current moment and choosing what the right thing to do is based on your values, based on how you feel. And yeah. And just racking up as many of those as you can. It's a kind of, it has a, a tipping point eventually, but at the start it can seem like pointless especially when you do that one action (laughs) and you're drowned out with negative thoughts for like half an hour and then you get back to it again but yeah no i think um it's quite validating speaking to you because everything you say basically i agree with um which is rare for me (laughs) i've I've trained myself to be much more disagreeable you know um but (laughs) I think, you know, we're both working with these guys and exploring them and exploring ourselves for so long now, the truths are, are self-evident. You know, the themes come out. What works reveals itself. What doesn't work clearly shows itself. It's just undeniable. And it's interesting, you know, this first time we've met, but we've come to the very similar conclusions about everything. And um, mm-hmm. It's fantastic. And I, yeah, we'll have to we'll have to wrap it up around here. I definitely look forward to talking to you more in the future. How do uh, so? Somebody wants to work with you. Somebody wants to get involved with your stuff. How do they get in touch with you? How do they find out more about you? Uh, the quickest way to reach me is niceguycoach.com. That's the quickest way to reach me. That's my main website. You can also head to my Facebook group at niceguygroup.com. That'll redirect you to my Facebook group if you want to join that. We're just trying to get some really kind of great discussions going in there and, and provoke uh, the community to, uh, to share and crowdsource and network and that kind of thing. Um, and uh, my online group, what I'm doing for an online is I have a uh, an inner circle network that I prototyped at planetniceguy.com. And in there I'm developing uh, lessons and modules and training in there as well as having a few group calls. So that's my, uh, that's my inner circle offering, but that's the three URLs to get a hold of me. Um, and love, if you, uh, if you do come in through those channels, let me know that you heard, you heard about me on the podcast. I'd be curious to know. And, uh, I'm very grateful to you, Daniel, for inviting me into this podcast. What an awesome conversation. I love it. Look forward to having another one with you at some point in the future. Um, And it's been great. Thank you. Thank you, man. And uh, yeah, for everyone listening, I, yeah, like I said, I couldn't agree with Jason more. So I definitely recommend checking out those sites. And if anything we've said resonated with you deeply, and if you're a nice guy, I have no doubt that it did just know, you know, that, that you're not at the end of the road is you could be at the beginning. 
it could only just get better from here if you're willing to essentially go and get uncomfortable um, with a new frame on it, realizing it's not your childhood anymore and you know, you're you're more capable, safer person to take some risks now and you might not regret it. So absolutely appreciate yep. your time, Jason, your wisdom that you've hard earned over many years. You know, people are Thank getting you. like, <laughs> like concentrated learning in an hour that takes decades. I definitely appreciate it because I know what I had to go through for myself and I know how hard it is. And uh, so much respect. So thank you, Jason. And we'll definitely talk. Much respect to you, sir. Thank you.